Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, a tale of exile and homecoming from writer Inara Vizemniak and her book, Among the Living and the Dead. Inara Vazemniex teaches creative nonfiction at the University of Iowa. She has won a Pushcart Prize, an Arona Jaffe Writers Award, and has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Feature Writing. And she's the author of Among the Living and the Dead, a tale of exile and homecoming, which we're going to be talking about today. Inara, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. Would you describe for us the idea behind Among the Living and the Dead? I was raised by my grandparents, who were refugees from Latvia. They fled uh, after the Second World War, and they ended up settling in the United States in Tacoma, Washington. I was the first generation born in the States. Uh, My father uh, had had a really disastrous divorce and was in sort of a bad place himself, kind of trying to figure out what to do next. And my grandparents stepped in and offered to care for me. I was two years old at the time. And What I later realized was that I was really raised inside a a home where their sense of the country they had left behind was still being very much preserved, was still sort of being lived out through language, but also through custom. They sort of established in miniature in the yard that they had what I would later realize was almost a a miniature Latvian farm, the same sort of things that they would have grown back home, uh, the same sorts of rituals of the seasons. I went to Latvian camp. uh, I went to Latvian summer school. So I had this very vivid and rich sense of their personal histories. I think they also recognized in me very early on that I was someone who was drawn to other people's stories. And so I would listen with rapt attention to their memories, in particular, my grandmother's memories of the farm where she had been raised and that she had been forced to leave behind and where all her family had been living when she was forced to leave it behind. And that particular part of her life became something that I I really latched onto. And I see now that what she wanted to do, given that I had kind of come from this sort of very difficult and, and traumatic place as a small child, she was wanting to sort of offer me the beauty of her story as a kind of as a kind of solace and as a kind of possibility really in some ways of what life could look like 
And of course, lots of migrants have some sort of nostalgia for the place that they've left or, you know, some sort of idea that in the future they will return. This is a case where Latvia, the country that they left at this time, I mean, it literally ceased to exist. Absolutely. It was at that point, it had been absorbed into the Soviet Union. And so, you know, I would have this experience of being told all about this place and its geography and its existence. But you would look at a globe at school and literally see sort of no no outline for that place. And definitely they carried with them that sense of maybe one day we can return home. Maybe one day when Latvia is uh, liberated from the Soviet Union, will all go back. But obviously, as time progressed, and they got older and older, they began to, you know, sort of hold a little less tightly, I think, to that dream. But before their deaths, they, they did actually have a chance to see Latvia regain its independence, and they were able to go home one more time. And in my particular case, I would have had the opportunity also to go back. But something interesting, I think, um, happened for me, also for my grandparents. There was a real sense of, in some ways, not wanting to disrupt the stories that they had held on to so tightly. I think in my case, I really didn't want the sort of beautiful stories of the farm that my grandmother had told me to kind of be replaced and to see what might be there instead. And so I spent a long time still holding on to those stories and sort of retelling them to myself, but instead focusing as a journalist on other people's stories and not my own life. And then it wasn't until I decided to leave the newspaper that I had been working at for the last 13 years and really begin to pursue longer form writing in earnest, I decided to take a personal trip to Latvia. I you know, was in a time of kind of great upheaval and changing my life. And I think what I wanted to do was call back to my grandparents, particularly my grandmother. In some ways, I kind of wanted to try to get kind of as close to her as I could to almost sort of have her help me through this period in my life. And so I finally paid a visit to my grandmother's former village and found uh, her family members who were still living in that area and began to both reconstruct my grandmother's stories, but also to see uh, instead alternate stories, alternate histories that had previously sort of not been visible to me. So kind of trying to find a way to blend the personal with the collective and also to question why we tell the stories that we do. Not so much even whether or not they're true, but why is the particular telling of a story the one that is important for us, urgent? We'll come back to your trip to Latvia, the first trip, and your, your meeting with Ausma, your grandmother's sister, in a in a while. But let's stick with your grandparents for the moment. I want to sort of get us to basically the journey that your grandmother took, the long eventual journey to get to the United States. She left in 1944 as the Soviet army was encroaching on, on Latvia. And obviously one of the reasons for that was, as it turned out, your grandfather had been had fought in the war for something called the Latvian Legion. So what was that? So the Latvian Legion was a sort of national, one might call it, or national a division, a sort of national division within the German army. The Germans, then this happened throughout Europe, the Germans uh, at a certain point in time began to see a lot of loss of their own troops and began to appeal to the nationalism of the countries that they were occupying to sort of say, um, here 
here, we need your help. We need you to sort of stand and protect your particular nations. Um, of course, this is, you know, this is all sort of really highlighting the propaganda of this particular situation. There were people certainly in Latvia who happily wanted to be part of the German army, who happily wanted to fight on behalf of the Nazis who were anti-Semitic. But over time, the sort of the Germans did not see the sort of um, numbers that they had hoped appealing, you know, to people to voluntarily sign up. And so they began to conscript people. They began to call people up into mandatory service. And so in Latvia, you saw sort of several waves where you saw those who willingly, immediately, happily wanted to join the German side. And then over time, over the course of a couple years, Latvians increasingly called up um, on mandatory terms. My grandfather was part of the last wave of people who were called up for mandatory service. And, you know, it's definitely a very complicated subject because many people will say there was no choice, that those who chose not to join the Latvian Legion and ostensibly the German army they couldn't. They would be punished. They would be sent to jail. They would be killed. Uh, but there were people who actually did choose uh, not to join, who, who did resist. Um, I think we, it's the situation we see often in war where sometimes people um, resort to a kind of passivity um, to their situation. And so in this case, um, my grandfather, he went. Um, he was in the 15th Division of the Latvian Legion, and they were largely deployed along the, the Eastern Front. And once I began to really dig into that particular period in time, what we were seeing was horrific losses, the Germans being pushed back, and the Legion at that point essentially being used to delay for as long as possible for German officers uh, and soldiers to be able to get out of Latvia. They were essentially just meant to kind of be a sort of human barricade. They were um, very ill-equipped. They had um, almost no ammunition, um, really kind of, you know, sort of terrible shortages. And it was very bloody and, and sort of very awful situation. And essentially, they were on the back heel from the start. So while my grandfather is essentially being part of this kind of, in essence, human barricade um, to give people time to flee. My grandmother is back in Riga, and she has just given birth to my father. And she, uh, like everyone else in the city, is sort of in a really tenuous place. They're not sure what they should do, whether they should try to stay put or whether they should flee and uh, just try to get out of the immediate fighting. In my grandmother's case, the decision became even more acute, obviously having a husband who is fighting for the Germans. And if things continue to go in the direction that it looks like it will go, he will certainly um, be on the wrong side of history. And this will also, in many ways, sort of put her on the wrong side of history. So eventually, when my father is three weeks old and the fighting is at its worst, she decides to flee the city. She also uh, had a two-year-old daughter at the time. And with a friend um, from work who volunteered to help, they bundled up the babies, grabbed what they could, and began to join the mass exodus of people trying to get out of Riga ahead of the Soviet troops. 
And I don't know, this is the part of the story where despite really um, exercising all my best investigative skills, I don't know exactly whether she left Riga by foot or she was actually able to get on a boat. Um, There were many people who ended up able to get on boats that were able to take them basically sort of as far as Poland and then began to try to make a trek into um, allied territory from there. So I'm not sure if she started straight out from Riga or if she at some point um, actually was able at least by ship to cover a little bit of ground. But what I do know is that from the moment she left Riga to the moment she was finally able to check herself and the children into a refugee camp in northern Germany in the Allied occupied zone, she spent nine months um, trying to make her way across Europe. And she basically headed straight into the last worst days of the war. I know that she skirted Dresden. They had actually considered stopping there, but just found it so overcrowded uh, and really sort of no place to stay. And then, you know, sort of that night looking back over their shoulders and seeing sort of fire where there should have been sky. So they missed that particular um, horror of the war, but they saw others. I mean, everywhere constantly surrounding them were just columns of people who had narrowly escaped one harrowing fate or another. They uh, hopped rail cars when they could. They slept in forests at night, kind of trying to hide from the troops. That's one of the things that doing the research certainly was a sort of another element that people have, I think, are only just beginning to talk about, which was the sort of level of sexual assault that women alone on the roads were experiencing um, at the hands of, of all of the different troops. And so they would try to kind of hide out, lay low, difficult with two small children. They sometimes tried to find farms where they could stay. So they depended on the kindness of, of different farmers who would let them go ahead and, you know, sleep in their barns and milk and, you know, do some work in exchange for food for the children and milk cows do um, kind of the, the chores that my grandmother was very accustomed to having grown up on a farm. But once they finally were able to get into allied territory, they were, you know, sort of immediately taken into the displaced persons camp system. And that, though, was not the end. It was the beginning of another six years of waiting to see where they might eventually find home, unable to go back to Latvia, but also in this six-year limbo period, um, finding no countries offering them a place within their borders. And then one day your grandfather turns up and they're reunited. Yes. My grandmother, I think, decided that he was dead. I mean, she didn't know whether he was alive or not. She had no idea what had happened to him. Um, Around the time that she was fleeing, he was injured in uh, a particularly bloody conflict um, about 80 kilometers outside of Riga. And uh, essentially, it was a situation where the Latvian Legion hunkered down and really just attempted to absorb the brunt of the Soviet onslaught for as long as possible, knowing that people were trying to get out of the city at the time. And the the lack of equipment really caught up to them at this point. And there, there was a period in time in the battle when people no longer had any more bullets, any more arsenal um, to fire back. And at a certain point, things went hand to hand. Um, my grandfather ultimately was shot in the eye. And he, uh, at that point, the sort of story becomes a little bit fuzzy. He was 
obviously taken to a field hospital somewhere, but uh, he ended up where wherever it was that he ended up did um, come under allied control. And he was detained for a period in time in a prisoner of war camp as the allies tried to figure out what the heck to do with these um, soldiers who were wearing uh, essentially Nazi uniforms, but were saying, no, we, we aren't Nazis, we're conscripts um, and part of this particular um, unit created by the Germans, but not German. Uh, it was terribly confusing. And uh, he was interrogated. All of the different prisoners were interrogated over a period in time while the rest of the world figured out exactly how to view their particular collaboration in the war. In the end, uh, it was decided that if someone was called up into one of these national armies as a conscript, then you were not guilty of any particular war crime. And so he was released. My grandmother knew none of this. When she checked into the camp, one of the more wrenching documents that I discovered was her intake form. And as she was writing out her information, there was a space where she was to write the number in her family. And she originally wrote down a number that would have included my grandfather. And then you can see her hand scratching it out and putting a new number three uh, without him. And so eventually through um, the sort of, you know, the work of the, the Red Cross, which was serving as a clearinghouse for all of these hundreds of thousands of refugees who had been displaced during the war, eventually he was able to locate the camp that they were at and he just appeared. By this point, my father was two. Um, my grandfather had never held him. They had never met one another. Um, it was suddenly um, to meet a stranger and a stranger deeply, deeply traumatized, wounded, clearly experiencing, um, you know, sort of the terrible ravages of war and the things that he saw as a result of being part of it, the things that he did, the things he did not do. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Inara Vazemniex, and we're talking about her book, Among the Living and the Dead, A Tale of Exile and Homecoming. And Inara, you mentioned your first trip over to Latvia, and you find your grandmother's farm. And there's a scene in the book where you basically describe your grandmother herself coming out of the door of the of the farm and walking up the path towards you. And of course, at this point, your grandmother's been dead for five years, and this is actually her sister, Ozma. What happened to the family that was left behind when your grandmother left? So when my grandmother left, she didn't have the opportunity to let her family know what she was doing, where she was going. She had no idea. But also at that point, sort of all means of communication were completely disrupted. And so as she is making her way across Europe with her children, her mother and her sister and her father and her brother are doing everything they can to hang on to the family farm. Little bit of Latvian history that it was very rare for uh, Latvians to actually own land of their own until really the sort of mid 1800s. Things had really been entirely under the kind of system of, of, you know, sort of barons and serfs. And maybe your family might have been attached to a patch of land for generations and you knew that land in and out, but it didn't belong to you. And so when serfdom was abolished and there began to be opportunities for people to try to buy lands from the various barons, it became a very coveted thing if your family was actually able to own the dirt upon which you had worked. And my my family, we had an ancestor who had been able over the years um, to slowly repay and ultimately buy um, the land that the family's home was situated upon. And so it became really imperative to many people that they hold on to that and that precious thing. In my family's case, what that ended up doing, though, was also placing them firmly in the crosshairs when collectivization was introduced in Latvia. And in uh, sort of in the period after the war, it began to be increasingly uh, clear that as with the rest of the Soviet Union, a large scale agricultural effort would be undertaken and people would be given jobs by being able to work on collective farms. And as one can imagine, obviously the farmers wouldn't be too happy about this idea of suddenly having to give up this land. And what had sort of been discovered in other countries was that it was much uh, easier to simply kind of get rid of the farmers than to deal with all of the upset um, and the anger over the possibility that one's land 
land could be taken away. And so in 1949, my grandmother's remaining family were, along with uh, 14,000 other uh, Latvians, most of them working in agriculture. They were rounded up and put on trains and shipped to the east to Siberia. And unlike when somebody might have been accused of a particular crime and sentenced to the gulags in Siberia, this was an administrative order. It was somebody somewhere having rounded up lists of names, uh, just signing a piece of paper. There was no, no even pretense or attempt to sort of say you have a, you have the ability to defend yourself you were just picked up and basically told you are going to live somewhere else now. And it helped fill the need too, because at that point in time as well, there were so many untapped resources in Siberia and you just really couldn't get people to want to go there voluntarily. So here was sort of a solution. You could move people off the land in Latvia and you could place them in strategic areas in Siberia where you hoped that people might might work to get coal or to cut wood to farm. And so in my family case, they were essentially dropped off in uh, a sort of a barely settled area outside of Tomsk. And these areas were called special settlements. There were no barracks. There was no sort of daily food ration. You basically had to just try to figure out how to survive on your own and quickly. Originally, my grandmother's sister actually was not rounded up. Her mother and her brother were rounded up and somehow she had sort of evaded this sort of official order. And she spent a night sort of debating what she should do. In some ways, the fact that they had not picked her up meant that, you know, she could perhaps try to go on with her life, but it would be leaving behind her mother and brother. And she knew um, vaguely everyone had a sense that if you're sort of picked up, you're basically going to Siberia. And so she had a very strong sense that they would not survive without her. And she was just a young woman at that time, just, um, you know, out of her teens. And eventually after a really kind of long a long and difficult night, she decided to go to the train station and to volunteer herself to go to Siberia so that she could be there to help take care of her mother and brother. Before you met and spoke to Asma about this yourself, how much of this did you already know? How, how aware was Livia, your grandmother, that this had happened? Eventually, she, she began to get some idea of what had happened, but only a very surface sense I mentioned that they had no idea at all what had happened to Livia. She then had no idea what happened to them. While basically the period that they were in Siberia mirrored the period that she was in the refugee camps, they tried at one point to send a letter and she tried at one point to send them a letter. There was some confusion. Neither reached the other for a while, both parts of the family just thought perhaps the other, something terrible had happened to the other. And then once they returned from Siberia, my grandmother was actually able to finally, you know, send a letter out and have it reach them. And at that point, there was clear sort of surveillance and, and censorship of all letters coming in and out of the country. So whatever you wrote, you wrote with a, a real awareness that that, that could somehow um, put someone in trouble and um, they needed to be very cautious. It's fascinating looking at these letters to see the way that they came up with sort of code, elision, things sort of spoken between the lines that would help um, key someone in 
to the outlines of what had happened. And so in my in the case of the family left behind in Latvia, they would write about being sent far away to work for a period of time. That was sort of the code that they used. And in that context, my grandmother was sort of able to figure out, okay, they had been in Siberia, but they were never able to directly address it. And then finally, over time, as things began to loosen up, and eventually when she was able to go to Latvia, she was able to hear some of the some of the story from Ausma. But even still, it's clear that in each case, both spared the other some of the worst details of what they had lived through. After that visit, you spend the next five years repeatedly going back, spending time with the family, but also getting to know modern rural Latvia. What did you find? It is a place that genuinely feels outside of time. And I want to be careful here because I, I know that there's always a danger of, of someone who is not from the countryside and especially someone who was raised on these stories of the you know idyllic Latvia of old. I don't want to make it into this sort of quaint pastoral. Certainly people are living busy modern lives. And yet it really does feel as you leave Riga that um, sort of for each kilometer you travel, like, you know, five years roll off the clock. And especially living with my grandmother's sister, Ausma, who is now, she recently had her 90th birthday, but she is living in a way that is as close to experiencing the Latvia my grandmother knew as I could ever hope to encounter. She continues to put up her own food and, you know, raise much of what she needs from the garden. She has a privy, not a toilet. There's no shower. You use the sauna um, to clean yourself off. There is uh, a way that time works. Life is very tied to the seasons that, that again, feels like you're able to sort of step back into time. She's using all the old, same old family recipes. You're able to see the landscape you know, much more clearly through that kind of um, life as well. You're really able to feel what it is to live in a place. It's emptying though. It's the countryside is emptying. There are not a lot of opportunities for young people. Those that remain are getting older and older. Once Latvia became part of the European Union, that was a, a really wonderful opportunity for a lot of young people who had ambition and wanted to make money and, you know, it's a, it's a hard life out in the countryside. It is truly in the summer times working for what can be 18 hours a day, you know, just seizing all the light that's possible and there's just so much to do. The pay is very low compared to other European countries, especially for um, sort of manual labor. But even for what we would consider highly specialized professional positions, the pay is still just much lower than one could get elsewhere in Europe. So what you see are a lot of empty country homes, um, a lot of places where people have closed the door shut and not come back sought new lives in the city, in Riga, and more cosmopolitan places. And so there is a real sense that there's something about life in the country, uh, in the countryside in particular, sort of traditions and understandings and way of living with the land that might be disappearing. You mentioned in the book that it's traditional in Latvia to, to have this idea that the dead 
periodically return to sort of catch up with with how the living are getting on and and if that was in any sense true it would be um it would be extremely crowded because the last century saw a lot of death you know regardless of of which regime was in charge and i wonder how you found that past does that past still lay heavy on the people obviously the ones that remember anything of it it's one of the reasons why i found latvia such an incredible place uh, as a writer was not only my family connection, but the fact that it truly is a place where it is possible constantly to see the overlay of the past upon the present. It is it is there. It is there in the woods. When you go out in the woods, there are places where um, locals know there had been mass graves. It's in a sort of interruption suddenly of trees uh, on the roadside where retreating troops had um, felled them all to try to block roads. It's in the rubble of a house that was bombed um, by one side or the other during the war that people have left and still remains. Uh, It's in the pine tree that you walk past in a pasture that's been etched with crosses to represent different mourners who came to mark a death. It's it's potent. And what's interesting, though, is the difference between this sort of uh, this kind of um, atmospheric haunting and the actual sort of haunting of memory. And that was that's an interesting place, too, and a complicated place. What we find what I found in terms of interviewing people was that a lot of people have all experienced um, direct sort of trauma because of the war, those of a certain age, and and uh, even their descendants, right, in some ways, because of the trauma their parents experienced, or things that they witnessed, or things that they did, that sort of remains in their life, even if it's not spoken. And so in Latvia, a lot of things are not spoken about, were not spoken about, and for a lot of reasons, some some for shame, some because eventually under um, sort of the Soviet system, you had to be very careful about what you said and who you said it to. And that just resulted in a sort of habit of keeping things very close to the chest, but also the larger sort of sense of how we often deal with trauma, which is the only way to get through it is to press forward, to press ahead and to not live in the past um, to live very much in the present tense. So I would often experience a real dissonance where I talk about all that sort of atmospheric historical memory, and yet a person who was very much a part of that, not talking about it, not wanting to really look at it, not wanting to delve into it. And so you can see in, in you know, just everyday life and individual life, the way in which people are pressed between those two things, the potency of history, but then also the desire to move on from it. One of the things that is very interesting in the amount of time during the the span of time that I was in the country was the sense of younger people suddenly becoming much more interested in some of the, you know, the older stories, the the deeper history. There'd almost kind of been a, a feeling that in the joy and excitement of suddenly having independent Latvia that people just wanted to turn toward the future and not look backwards. And things had sort of reached a place where 
even the local librarian was saying there had been a kind of run on, you know, books that dealt with more historical issues. So sudden, a sudden interest in kind of trying to like reconcile where people wanted to go with um, some of those unspoken elements of the past and to actually try to bring them out. Well, it's interesting that you raise that idea of, of the younger people suddenly being interested in history, because I wanted to finish off talking about the fact that, you know, suddenly, unexpectedly, perhaps, there's a rise of nationalism again across Central and Eastern Europe in the US as well. And obviously, in Russia... Absolutely. One of the things that I could never have anticipated that no one who writes a book can anticipate is the strange way in which something that you find yourself being obsessed with simply because it feels deeply personal can end up holding real resonance with present day issues. And when I began the book, none of this was really as prevalent, right, as it is now in our minds, the sort of danger of all of this. But over the process of working on the book, these things began to kind of reemerge, and I began to notice them in a very different way. And One of the things that was deeply troubling to me as I was working on the book was to see the way in which things built in the country in the years leading up to World War II felt so frighteningly similar to the way that we can see things building now. And one of the hopes that I had in writing the book and very specifically writing about some of those elements that were not talked about in terms of histories, both collective and private, in terms of Latvian collaboration in World War II and participation in the Holocaust, but also the sorts of non-decisions that people made like becoming part of the Legion, for example, for answering those call-ups, for sort of walking about in one's everyday life and just kind of hoping that as long as the war doesn't touch you or there's nothing, you know, then there's really nothing you can do. I wanted to really address all of those issues straight on and to give them voice as painful as they are because I didn't want that to remain omitted any longer. I wanted people to be able to see what the consequences are of not illuminating these particular issues, choices, repercussions. I've been talking to Inara Vazemniex. We've been talking about her book, Among the Living and the Dead, A Tale of Exile and Homecoming. It's out in the UK from Pushkin Press. Inara, thank you so much for telling me about it. Thank you so much for your wonderful questions. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.